Well, this morning we're going to be focusing on that text from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. If you have your Bible with you, I invite you to follow along. It's such a beautiful passage. I love this passage because it encapsulates, it, it recapitulates for us in a very brief form the entire gospel. It's just crammed with good news for all of us. And as I prayed about it this week, it occurred to me that I hadn't had the joy of just preaching the plain yet glorious good news, the plain yet glorious good news of Jesus Christ in a while as, as just the focus, the single focus of a sermon. And so this morning, I just want to tell you from the scriptures the amazing good news, the amazing good news of God's love for you and what he has done to show that love, to demonstrate that love in Jesus Christ. Now, St. Paul is real smart. He's real smart, and he's got a carefully constructed, uh, carefully constructed argument throughout the book of Romans. He weaves Hellenistic and Judaic rhetoric into this amazing tapestry in order to tell us the story of God's work to reconcile alienated humanity to himself. But speaking for myself, I need a simpler framework. I need something a little easier to follow, a little easier to understand in order to apply God's word here in Romans chapter 5. So here's how I want us to, to break this passage down. This is what I want us to see in this passage. And the first thing is that we, so this, is, this is so dead simple. You know, this, I, th I think I was in license to preach school 30 years ago. Uh, and, they, and this is the instruction they gave us for preaching. Tell them what you're going to tell them. Then tell them, and then tell them you told them. So that's what I'm going to do. I, I hope you can follow that. <laughs> so the, here it is. We need to see where we were before God acted on, behalf of, uh, on our behalf in Jesus Christ. So we need to see where we were, where we were. And then we need to see what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So what has God done? Where were we, and now what has God done? And then we need to grab a hold of the mystery of the depth of God's love for us. And so we really do want to hear about God's great love for sinners. That's just, I love saying that. God's love for sinners. And then in conclusion, we need to see the only response. What kind of response is called forth from us for this kind of love, towards this kind of love? And so to begin with, Paul reminds us of where we were before God acted on our behalf in Jesus Christ. And here's the truth about the human condition. In verse 6, Paul says we were powerless. If you read it in the ESV, while we were still weak. But I like, I'm actually going to be pulling from the, e, uh, from the NIV translation a lot this morning. And I, because I really like the punch that Paul gives, or the translator gives Paul's words here. We were powerless. The, uh, the scripture says here, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless. Prior to God's act to save us through Jesus Christ, you and I had no power apart from God, no ability in ourselves to change, to modify, to rectify, to manage 
our desperate fallen condition. No power. We could not, uh, as someone has said, uh, and of course some, most of us won't get this reference, but we couldn't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps even if they were made of the finest Corinthian leather. And if you know that reference, you are a baby boomer. So welcome. You're welcome. So, Jesus says this, though, as well. He, uh, Jesus tells us, now Paul's going to say a lot about this in, in Romans chapter 6, but I'm thinking, well, where did Paul get this idea? Jesus says a lot about this, this truth in, in John's gospel, in John chapter 8. Jesus says that we were slaves to sin. Slaves are powerless. They're owned by another power. Something is dominating them. We were slaves to sin. Paul brings that out and elucidates that at great length in Romans chapter 6. But here's what Jesus says in John 8, verses 34 through 36. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave, a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Paul says in verse 8 that we are sinners. So we're powerless sinners. That's who I was and that's who you were. We were dominated by a force beyond our control. So not only is that who we were, we see it all around us in the world today. Among those people that we love who are dearest to us and yet who have rejected Jesus Christ, they've turned inwards on themselves. They're unable to break the cycle, the pattern that brings destruction to those around them and to themselves. We've been there and we see it around us even right now. Even those of us who are seeking to live, even people who are seeking to live independently from God, and yet seem to have their act all together. And that's a lot of people. There's a lot of people that seem to have their act all together. Those people, though, are still slaves, trapped in a cacophony of self-contradictory passions that rob us of real peace and satisfaction in life. And so English author Francis Spufford writes this. He says... It's very, he uses some very uh, contemporary idiom, which I'm going to omit because we're in church. <laughs> but he says this. He says, we're talking about, uh, what we're talking about here is not just our tendency. He's talking about this power that dominates us. What we're talking about here is not just our tendency to lurch and stumble and screw up by accident. Our passive role as agents of entropy. It's our active inclination to break stuff. Stuff here including promises, relationships we care about, and our own well-being and other people's. And then he says, you are a being whose wants make no sense. Don't harmonize. Whose desires deep down are discordantly arranged so that you truly want to possess and you truly want not to at the very same time. You are equipped, you realize, more for farce or even tragedy than happy endings. You're human, and that's where we live. That's our normal experience, even if we pretend to have our act all together. That's what it means to be a powerless sinner. But not only were we sinners, in verse 9, Paul says that we were subject to the wrath of God. And in verse 10, it says that we were enemies of God, subject to the wrath of God, and enemies of God. 
we just can't sugarcoat this. Prior to trusting in Jesus Christ, prior to placing our faith in Jesus Christ and His saving act on our behalf, <clears throat> Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, this is what Paul says about us prior to that. He says, we were by nature children of wrath. We were by nature children of wrath. And even as I you know, went through contemporary online commentary on blogs and things like that, this week as I looked at these scriptures, uh, there's an allergic reaction to talking about the wrath of God. People do not like to hear that. I wonder why. (laughs) Duh, no, we don't like to hear that. And as much as we would like to deceive ourselves otherwise, there is, please listen, there is no spiritual demilitarized zone. There is no place of moral neutrality for us. In other words, there's no place where we can either, you know, I'm not really for God, I'm not really against God. You know, Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. We're either children of God by adoption, or we are the enemies of God, and we need to know that. If you think you can live in morally neutral territory, if you think you are a non-combatant, the Word of God says otherwise. You are, in fact, an enemy of God if you are not adopted as His child. But because we imagine ourselves to be morally superior to God, we're revolted by talk about the wrath of God. That's where all of that talk about, all the the objections I encountered, the contemporary objections to the terms wrath of God uh, that I I read this week, it all comes from people who think they have better character than God does. That's a little uh, megalomaniacal, I think. Or monomaniacal, is that a thing too? Yes, it is actually. But it is, it's megalomaniacal. We have to remember, though, that there is, this is, this is critical, there is no good news, there is no need for a gospel if there is no wrath to be saved from. We have to remember that the white, hot, dazzling love of God, the white, hot, dazzling love of God becomes the furnace of God's wrath when rejected. In just the past couple of weeks, this is a, I told somebody the other day, nobody uses this phrase anymore, but I said, I said, if I hear this term one more time, this phrase one more time, I think I'm going to go postal, go postal. But in just the past couple of weeks, more than one person has spouted this platitude in a conversation with me. After all, Jesus is all about inclusion. Now, if you said that this week, I'm not talking about you. Somebody else that's not here. After all, Jesus is all about inclusion. And what they mean by that is that Jesus accepts us just the way we are. Well, brothers and sisters, if Jesus accepts us that just the way we are, if that is true, then Jesus was an idiot to get himself crucified. If you're just fine just the way you are, that was a foolish, foolish act. So no, Jesus is not all about inclusion in that sense. Instead, Jesus is all about the kingdom of God. I was reading in Luke 19 as a part of my devotional reading this past week, and I was stunned again by a parable in that chapter. It's the parable of the ten minas, or minas, M-I-N-A-S, minas. And it's kind of the, the corollary to Matthew's uh, parable, Jesus' parable in Matthew on the, the talents. 
Jesus, being a good preacher, reuses his material and modifies it to the occasion. That's never happened here. Everything's been fresh, never frozen. You're getting no retreads. Actually, this one is really, this isn't a retread. But as I was reading that parable, there are a couple of verses in that parable that really jumped out that do not go along with the Jesus is all about inclusion, delusion. And here they are. This is Luke uh, 19, verse 12. And he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. We do not want this man to reign over us. And at the end of the parable, Jesus says, But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. That's the bad news. And yet, here's what God has done for us. That's where we were. This is what God has done for us. And for those who are his enemies, which included me. This is what Paul says in verse 6 again. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the really good people. For the morally upright. For those who really deserved a Savior. No, no. At just the right time, while we were still sinners, while we were still powerless, Jesus died for the ungodly. That's what God has done for you and for me. Jesus, listen, Jesus died for his enemies. Jesus didn't die for his friends. He died for his enemies. We just heard that as enemies, as those who did not want him to reign over us, we deserved the death penalty. But instead of giving us what we deserve, Jesus took the death penalty that we deserved... He drank the cup of God's wrath to the bitter dregs. He took our punishment, and in exchange, He gave us righteousness. What does it say in 2 Corinthians 5? What does it say? It says uh, that He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And as a result, when we place our trust in Jesus Christ, St. Paul says in verse, chapter 5, verse 1, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That word justified is one of those words that we hear in, in the Scriptures, and perhaps we say it a lot in Christian circles, but we need to remember what it means. It is a term of law, It is a forensic term, it's a a technical term, and it means this. God has told his enemies, he's declared over his enemies, who have received his offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. He looks at them and he bangs the gavel and he says, not guilty. All that stuff that you did and you know that was bad. The things that God's wrath is directed towards. God sees that. He sees you. He looks, through the, through, looks at you clothed in the righteousness of His Son. And He says, you are not guilty. You never have to bear that shame again. 
You don't have to have the consequences. The charges have been dropped. You are free to go. No one will remember this anymore. There's nothing. You've got a clean record. You are not guilty. Praise God. Praise God. I was pretty guilty. I was real guilty. I needed a Savior that could declare me not guilty. He gives us His righteousness. We are justified, declared not guilty. And it doesn't stop there. Paul also says this. He says, so that's a, a term of law. But then he says, he says that we are at peace with God and that we are reconciled with God. So there's a term of law, but the rest of this is relational. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him, brought close. The hostility has ended through the death of His Son. You don't have to be God's enemy. And you can now, we can all be God's beloved children. And that's what we call grace. We don't deserve this, but He gives it to us as a free gift of grace. All this is God's gift. Michael Bird says this, he says, Believers are in the right with God, not as a reward for any accomplishment, nothing that we have done, but solely as a part of a divine reckoning of faith, of trust in God for righteousness. And that's the amazing mystery of God's love. God loves us, hear, hear me, God loves us so much that you and I don't get what we deserve. God loves us so much that we don't get what we deserve. A few weeks ago, my dad and I, yes, my dad is still alive. He's actually still practicing law in Rockingham, North Carolina. Uh, he was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. I'm so proud of that <laughs> on this Father's Day. Uh, but a few weeks ago, my dad and I went to the home of my dad's great uncle, whose name is Diamond, uh, his name was Diamond Jim Lucas. And you can Google that. I, I recommend you. This is a real person. This is a real story. This is not a preacher story. This really happened. So, so, so we went to, the, to what's now a museum, but it was really the home of Diamond Jim Lucas in a place called Hiddenite, Hiddenite, North Carolina in Alexander County. In order for my dad to tell the folks at the museum there his remembrances of this, uh, this very colorful figure, historical figure. And while we were there, we also heard stories about Diamond Jim that we had never heard before. Uh, Jim had lived a very 1920s, a roaring 20s lifestyle. Uh, he, he wasn't a mean man. He's just kind of wild a little bit. You know, he, he literally did have that, the raccoon skin coat. That was a thing in the 20s. And he did have a Stutz Bearcat, which evidently he flipped and totaled and walked away just fine. So I don't know how he did that, but I'm sure it was uh, being uh, some of his escapades were less than savory, and that might have been one of them. And we heard about those escapades. And sometime during the 1920s, and this is, we're, we're just now piecing this together, Jim married a woman named Peggy Remington. Now, Peggy was the widow of one of the, you know, Remington Arms manufacturer's family. We're one of those, those boys. She married into that family, and he had passed away. And uh, Diamond Jim was a collector of firearms. He knew Wild Bill Cody. He, he was, he, uh, General Pershing gave him a helmet from World War I. There was all these, he knew everybody. He knew everybody. And so he married into that family, but they didn't get along. Now, she had been a silent screen actress. This is very interesting, I thought. She'd been a silent screen actress, screen actress but they did not get along. And so uh, he did what you would do if you had a lot of money and you could do that and you didn't get along with your, your wife. He, 
he put her in a very posh, beautiful, upscale institution. <laughs> he committed her. This is horrible. He committed her to a mental institution. But it was more like a spa for people who did that kind of thing. You see what I'm saying? So now, now, you do need to know that after he died, she miraculously recovered and went on to star, in, or not star, but at least to be in several films uh, in Hollywood again. So Jim was a playboy. And his sister, my great-great-grandmama, Mamie Sharp, Mamie Lucas Sharp, feared for his soul. She played the organ at the Baptist church forever. And she really loved Jesus. And she prayed on her knees every day for her little brother's salvation. And as he was laying at the end of his life, dying with a brain bleed, she was still pleading for Jesus to save him at his bedside. Jim began to have visions of the hell, the hell that awaited him, and he cried out, Don't let him get me, Mamie. Don't let him get me. Crying out, terrified. She said, she's weeping. She said, Jim, I, I can't do it for you. You have to call out to Jesus for yourself. And he did. And Jesus saved Diamond Jim Lucas. And the terror left him, and God's peace and reconciliation came over him. I'm telling this story, by the way, to my next-door neighbor, who's one of my best friends. She's hearing this story as I'm telling it for the first time after I've heard it. And then he had another vision following that moment. He said, and, and this is what my great-great-uncle Jim said. He cried out, Oh, Mamie, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And then he died. And do you know what my sweet dear friend said after hearing that story? She said, that's horrible. That's not fair. And I said, you're right. You're right, it's not. Because grace isn't fair, thank God. I am counting on grace not being fair. That it doesn't give me what I deserve. Because of Jesus, it doesn't mean, it means that we don't get what we deserve. And that's the crazy, upside-down, offensive love of God. That's, that's the gospel. God loves us. We're enemies of God, sinners. God has acted in Jesus Christ through His death and resurrection on our behalf. We place our trust in Him, and we, that's all we can do. We don't earn it. We just say, I believe you did it. I trust you, Jesus, for my salvation. And God's act of salvation occurs in us. We receive it and enact it in baptism. And that's the crazy upside down offensive love of God. And this is what Paul says again. Let me continue to read this from, at verse 6 and continuing. You see at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, somebody might take a bullet for a truly good person. Somebody might take a bullet for somebody like a Mother Teresa. But God shows His love for, this, for us in the, this and that, that Jesus didn't die for really good people. He died for the bad people. He died for His enemies. He died for you and He died for me. I need to just stop talking a second. We need to let that sink in. That's why we're sitting in a barn this morning. That's what gathered us together. 
is that God acted on your behalf and my behalf. He made us a part of his family. You, we are his family now. You're not just sheep without a shepherd. You're family. You're his family. You're brothers and sisters to each other, so you're stuck with each other for eternity. <laughs> Better learn to get reconciled. So what do you do with that kind of love? What is the only response to this? What do you do with so great a salvation? Well, during World War II, Dutch pastor Hans Hogendijk lived in Amsterdam, and during those years of Nazi occupation of Amsterdam, he and his family did, as others did, actually, uh, they hid Jewish children in their home from the Nazis. But one night in the darkness, the Gestapo came, and Hans and his whole family were arrested, and they were loaded up in a cattle car to be taken away to a death camp. And all night long, they rode along. They knew what was going to happen. They were in heartbreaking anxiety. They were jostling against one another and against the other people who were jammed into that cattle car. They'd been stripped of any form of dignity. They were absolutely terrified. They knew they were going to be taken to one of the extermination centers. They didn't know if it would be Auschwitz or Buchenwald or Dachau. But finally, the long night ended, and the train stopped, and the doors of the, uh, of the cattle car clattered open, and they were escorted out of the cattle car, and they were lined up, and uh, they were blinded by the bright sunlight. They thought as they stood there in line that they were going to be mowed down by machine gun fire. But in the midst of their terror, they discovered the amazing good news, and it was good news beyond belief. They discovered that in that bright morning sunlight that they were not in a death camp at all. They weren't even in Germany. They were in Switzerland. Because during the night, someone through an act of personal courage and daring had tripped the switch and sent that train to Switzerland and to freedom. And those now who came to them were not their captors, but their liberators. And instead of being marched to death, they were welcomed to new life. And from that time on and for the rest of his life, Hans kept asking this question, what do you do with such a gift? What do you do with such a gift? Church of the Lamb, what do we do with such a gift? For if we were God's, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we boast, we rejoice, we exult, we glory in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You and I were hurtling through the darkness, heading to death, but at the cost of his own life, Jesus Christ tripped the switch and brought us safely to a new country of freedom and life. What do you do with such a gift? All you can do is boast in God's goodness, exult in His goodness. All you can do is rejoice in His great love. The only response to such a great gift is a life returned to God and love, no matter what that means. And that kind of gift defies definition. Such love defies our ability to speak it as prose, and all we can do is sing about it and shout about it. Finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. 
changed from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before Him, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Thank you, Jesus, that in the dark night of our terror, you flip the switch through your own act of amazing love, and you brought us into a new country. Lord, if there are still those of us who are trying to live in what we imagine could be a neutral location, show us that there really isn't such a place. Convict us of our aloneness from you, our sin against you, our enmity with you. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, call those of us who need to hear the shepherd's call into a saving relationship with you this morning. For those of us, Lord, who have been in that relationship, many of us for years and decades, and some of us fairly new, never let us forget the love that saved us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.